Welcome back to Avocado Knit. I'm glad you found us, me, I suppose, at uh, my new RSS feed, or whatever it is that it is. The new address, anyway. Welcome. <laughs> this time, as I promised, we have an interview with a published author. We also have an excerpt from her book. The book itself is actually in negotiations with Audible for a, um, an audiobook version of it, and a cousin of mine um, is being considered to read the book. Um, as I said, I have scads of relatives who are all very, very talented, and this happens to be one of them. I haven't seen her in years, but I'm sure she'll do a great job. I really liked her when I, w when I did get to see her. Anyway, that would be my cousin Emily, and um, I do hope she does get the job. So, as I said, um, excerpt from the book, interview with my mother. Did I mention that the published author is my mother? And uh, then I'm going to talk a little bit about my sweater that I've been working on, the Joe Sharp uh, Silk Road cardigan that I've been changing bits of as I work on it. And I think we will be out of time by then. Um, and so I'll have to save news about the rats and the chickens and all that stuff uh, for later. But I just recently read a book that I really liked about some homesteading skills being acquired by a, a young urban person such as myself and perhaps yourself. And I will talk about that in a future episode. I'm so glad that I have so much to talk with you about. And I'm so glad you're there listening. Thanks for tuning in. That was Nothing Hardly Ever Troubles Me by Arthur Collins and Byron G. Harlan from the Internet Archive. This is called Petronella Saves Nearly Everyone, and it's the first book in a uh, quartet called The Entomological Tales of Augustus T. Percival. And entomological means having to do with bugs and beetles, and Augustus T. Percival is Petronella's um, uncle. Petronella is a lady of society, young lady of society, who's just about to have her coming out party. Chapter 1, in which an intruder is coming. There is something terribly wrong with Mr. Augustus T. Percival. The wrongness can be traced to a particular occurrence at a specific time, 12, 47, and 32 seconds on May 26, in 1903, to be exact. I had just looked at my watch. The weather was so unusually warm for the season, and so Mr. Percival, who is my uncle Augustus, a few select friends and myself were gathered on the lawn in the south garden of my estate just outside London, enjoying a little luncheon in honor of my sixteenth birthday. 
At that precise time Uncle Augustus laughed loudly at a rather mediocre joke, the one about the man with two heads who could eat only strawberry jam with one mouth and cheese curds with the other. At the very moment Uncle Augustus opened his own mouth for a most unseemly guffaw. And Uncle Augustus is a very large man, so the rather moist open mouth made a massively large target. A beetle of enormous proportions flew into the orifice and was swallowed. Unfortunately, we did not know what type or genus the beetle was, or a cure might have been effected. Uncle Augustus sat deathly still, with all signs of his former joviality banished. He set down his cup of tea undrunk, pushed away the plates piled high with crumpets and cucumber sandwiches, and said, Perhaps I don't feel quite the thing after all, and departed to his room. My other guests and I paused for an awkward moment, then continued in polite conversation, just as those who occupy the upper echelons of society ought to do when faced with unusual circumstances. Then we, too, departed to our rooms for a nap, to fortify ourselves for the evening's festivities. No one was more startled than I when, several hours later, I saw Uncle Augustus on his hands and knees groveling in the newly turned earth of the East Garden. Rushing to see if I might be of some assistance to my beloved relation, I was horrified to see him pounce, then hold up a wriggling centipede. Before I could do more than gasp, Uncle Augustus dropped the squirming creature into his mouth, which I have previously described all too graphically, and swallowed the cartilaginous body with seeming relish. The emotion, not the condiment. Uncle Augustus! He beamed at me from his prostration in the dirt. Ah, my dear Eunice, so good to see you again. I considered his greeting rather imbecilic, considering that he was groveling in my garden and we'd only just parted company a few hours before. Besides, he knew I preferred to be called Petronella. Eunice is such an unfortunate name, and I cannot imagine what came over my dear but deceased parents when they gave it to me. Perhaps some sort of simultaneous apoplectic fit. Uncle Augustus, I said more severely, and pointed toward the garden bed, which Thomas the gardener had taken great pains to till in preparation for the dahlias I had hoped to plant on Saturday. What are you doing? Uncle Augustus frowned. He tapped one finger on his chin, then waggled it at me thoughtfully. I've been contemplating that myself. The question seems to be not so much what I am doing, but what I've become. It appears I had developed an enormous appetite. Yes, well, that is common knowledge. I couldn't help but agree. <clears throat> Let me continue uninterrupted, if you please. It seems I have an enormous appetite for all things of the insect and arachnoid varieties. He caught a passing fly in one swift movement of his hand, popped it into his mouth, and chewed happily. I could do not but stare. For the first time in my life, I was at a loss for words. The sight of Uncle Augustus's enormous jowls expanding and contracting with disturbing regularity was enough to make anyone stare, but that was not the cause of my distress. Over the years that he had been my guardian, I had become inured to the sight of Uncle Augustus eating. No, I was contemplating that it was my moral duty to render assistance to Uncle Augustus through this trial. Blood will out, as they say, and he was my blood rela relative, brother to my dear departed mother, whom I missed terribly. The question was, how was I to help him? Oh, uncle, I said finally. Do not fret yourself, my child. I have examined myself rather thoroughly and seem to be in fine fettle, except for this compulsion to eat crawling creatures. 
He eyed the ground next him for a moment, and grabbed a spider that had the misfortune to have ventured forth from its lair. It quickly shared the fate of the fly. "You cannot possibly continue in this state," I protested, concerned for his well being. "And why not? I feel better than I have in years." He used both hands to pluck a series of ants from the retaining wall about the garden plot, his fingers darting from the stones to his lips so rapidly I could scarcely see them except as a blur. I had never known Uncle Augustus to move so quickly. Indeed, there was a glow of health about him that I had not seen before. "Could you please stop that that inhaling of those odious bugs and talk sensibly to me?" Uncle Augustus paused and fixed his gaze on me most consideringly as one of his hands seemed to move of its own volition toward a pile of stones. He caught it with his other hand and held it tightly. Both hands shook with the effort of keeping still, and for the first time he seemed a trifle alarmed. Why, no, I, I don't seem able to. Be able to what? Stop or talk sensibly? Stop, of course. Nor do I see any reason why I should stop. And I feel that, under the circumstances, I am conversing quite rationally. He began sorting through the pile of stones. When he found a fat slug, he held it up triumphantly and then lowered it into its gaping maw. I could not watch him any further, and so I turned my back, pressing my eyes shut in horror at the loud slurping noise that followed. Uncle Augustus, I said through gritted teeth, I cannot imagine that your behavior is at all socially acceptable. Surely that is a reason to want to stop gorging yourself on creeping, crawling things. My dear Eunice, Petronella! If you must, Petronella, although your, your dear mother loved the name Eunice. Well, I do not, and neither did my father, which is why Petronella is my first name. Very well then, Petronella. You have always been more concerned with the conventions of society than I have. Unfortunately, that is so. Except when you interrupt. I must say, this penchant you have for interrupting is most uncivil. I was mortified to realize he was correct. I apologize, dear uncle. My concern for you overwhelmed me to the point of rudeness. He did not answer immediately, and when he did, it sounded as if he had just swallowed something. I shuddered to think what it was. <clears throat> Apology accepted, dear child. However, I can see that my current state could be something of an embarrassment in polite company, which is especially problematic because my presence is required at this evening's event. I swung around to face him, my mouth open in a perfect O of consternation. Tonight! Oh, Uncle Augustus, this would have to happen today of all days, just when I am about to attend my coming out party. James will be so disappointed. My hand flew to cover my mouth. I mean, Jane will be so disappointed, and so will all the other guests. Uncle Augustus seemed not to have heard my slip of the tongue, one that Dr. Freud would have made much of if I understand his theories correctly, for my cherished relative seemed intent on going about his hunting. And why should your little friends be disappointed? We cannot possibly hold the party if you are in such a condition. Pausing only long enough to fix me with a thoughtful gaze, Uncle Augustus said, Fear not, dear Eunice, uh, Petronella. We shall not deprive your friends of your company. I have thought of a plan.
I am a fella quick to act. Yesterday will prove the fact. I'm a strolling for a stroll beside the lake. Now don't think I'm up the pole, but I like to take a stroll, and I take one if there's nothing else to paint. In the water all at once, I could hear some silly dunce. He was shouting, help, I'm drowning, so I turn. And I'm always very calm, and this cause for great alarm. Well, so far as cool behavior is concerned, I don't want to say a word about it. When I saw the fella couldn't swim, what did I do? There you are, well, ask me. Did I throw a life belt after him? No, because I hadn't got a life belt. When the poor chap saw me on the shore, he said, help, I'm drowning. I said, are oh, yeah. you? Oh, what do you want to talk about it for? Yes, I am. <laughs> it worked. Yay. Okay. This is my mother, um, Jeannie Lowe, which, of course, is her, her writing name, since she cannot be known by her real name, or it would foil all of her attempts to secretly save the world. Um, and she is a published <laughs> author, and uh, her book that she, that is most recently published is called... Um, well, everybody always gets it in the wrong order, so why don't you say it in the order in which it was intended? Okay, it's in the series, The Entomological Tales of Augustus T. Percival, and the book, uh, the first book is called Petronella Saves Nearly Everyone. There you have it. Petronella Saves Nearly Everyone. And I have heard that you are able to sum up for people, for editors, for publishers, the entire book in one sentence. That's right. Um, it's called a pitch line and or a pitch that you use to in interest the editors. And so usually in a query letter, then you have this one line. Um, and I said that this book is a combination of Sherlock Holmes, P.G. Wodehouse, or Oscar Wilde with a touch of Kafka. Ah, touch of Kafka. All right. Do you want to explain each of those? <laughs> well, it is a mystery. So, Sherlock Holmes, of course. And then the tone is um, a very much a 1903 British tone, which would encompass the tones used in P.G. Wodehouse's books and also in Oscar Wilde's plays. And P.G. Wodehouse then, is best known maybe for the Jeeves and Worcester book. That's right. Jeeves and Wooster, and plays for Broadway, the, the silly, light-hearted um, romance plays. That's right, and um, he always has uh, young, young men and young women who are aristocrats who get themselves into terrible circumstances and manage to get themselves out of it with a lot of light-hearted, uh, very British humor. So, and then the Kafka, of course, comes from the metamorphosis. I can't even say it. The metamorphosis uh, that is the story of Kafka's where a man turns into a large insect. Um, but it's only a touch of Kafka because nobody actually turns into an insect. It just has a lot of insect stuff in it. 
And um, I believe Uncle Augustus developed some insect-like abilities. That's right. Well, you know, the series is um, the entomological tales of Augustus T. Percival. And so to be true to the, to the uh, title, Uncle Augustus accidentally, um, accidentally swallows a, a large foreign beetle and it changes him and so that he becomes an obsessive compulsive insectivore but he also likes other creepy crawly things such as worms and slugs and spiders and um, he <laughs> can't help himself and that leads to certain problems especially socially uh, it's not very nice to eat bugs in public no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> He's very much a British gentleman, so it's it's difficult for him. Yes, and he, I, I imagine he must have to restrain himself an awful lot. Yes, he does. <laughs> I say I imagine as if I hadn't already read the book a couple of different times, and also the the stuff that that comes in the next books too. Woohoo! They're very good. So, um, how did you come up with an idea for this very strange book of yours? <laughs> well, it, it actually kind of sprang almost fully formed out of my head. Uh, <laughs> well, at least the first chapter did because I was very, very, um, I was frustrated with my dissertation that I was writing uh, for my PhD, and uh, I could see that all this scholarly language was uh, just rather foolish at times. Uh, it made me laugh. And then at the same time, I'd been reading some P.G. Wodehouse. And, <laughs> and one day I was so frustrated, and this chapter just kind of came out. And I wrote it down and showed it to my writer's group. And, and I thought, Nobody would like it, but a couple of them just really loved it and wanted me to continue on with the story. So I did. <laughs> and still some of the members of your writers' group don't like the book. That's right. That's right. Um, I have a couple of people who tolerate it because it got published. But, um, but they've been very supportive of me, even though they don't really like to read it. And they very bravely read the second one for me, <laughs> even though they, it isn't their cup of tea, so to speak. Well, that's what you want from a writer's group, so I'm glad yes. you have a good one. Now, after going through the writing process and, and your writer's group um, helps with that, they, they give you someone to, to read bits to and to test things off of, um, yeah. then you, when you have a finished manuscript, then what did you do next? Um, actually, I thought I had a finished manuscript, and what I found out later is it was more of a bare-bones manuscript. But the voice was really strong, and the circumstances were so ridiculous and and far out that they were engaging enough that I actually had two editors who liked it. But the first one, who more or less really liked it and wanted to buy it and help me go through a couple of revisions ended up um, quitting her job and so I had to go sell it again and um, and then I sold it to Houghton Mifflin and they 
really liked it. I will. Kate O'Sullivan, who's the senior editor for Children's Book Division, really liked it. And uh, she had me do several revisions, actually. And we added chapters and we did new directions and all kinds of stuff. It was it's amazing. I even had to completely redo one subplot that ran throughout the whole book because it was too much like another book that they just had published, and she hadn't realized that at the time. And when she realized that that was, I mean, even a couple of the names were the same as in this other book. So we had to, I had to go through and completely rewrite an historical aspect. I was going to have it set, you know, in pre-World War One. Um, politics with Germany and it ended up being the same thing as another book, that other book and then this book um, I changed to having pre-World War I dealings with uh, the Panama Canal and Panama and Colombia so it turned out okay excuse me yeah, that, and um, it makes your book that much more unique something you wouldn't have known about otherwise. Overall, if you were given the option, you know, looking back, if you could have, say, in, in an alternate universe, uh, self-published your novel um, and still had the opportunity to reach as many uh, potential buyers with it, but not had the opportunity to work with an editor, then how do you think it would have been different? I don't think it would have been nearly as good. The, um the advantage of a good editor is that it's a different take on your writing. It's somebody who can see the flaws as well as what's appealing and help you retain what is good and change what is bad. You often read books that have a lot of potential, a great deal of um, interesting plot, interesting characters, but the fine-tuning is just not there and you think, well... You know, if they'd had a really good editor, then that would have been a lot better. Um, and if they'd been willing to work. Sometimes it comes down to budget problems. And they, they simply don't have the time or the budget to to do all the fine-tuning. But when you do have someone who takes a, a good interest in an editor, who, who has the smarts and the talent and the skills, then the the book's going to be that much better. That's very interesting information. Thank you. So now that you have this relationship with an editor and um, you have a, a book, um, I know that, that you went and got an agent. And a lot of times people think you have to have an agent before you get an editor or before you have to develop a relationship with an editor, um, especially after, say, 9-11, when people stopped taking unsolicited manuscripts so much. Mm -hmm. um, so could you briefly tell us how you sold your book to um, Kate at Houghton Mifflin without an agent, and then now how you found your agent and what sort of service he provides, what sort of relationship you have with him? Okay. Um, we Okay, when I was trying to sell the book the second time, um, it was different from the first because the first one I met the editor at a conference and 
she a was just right? in love with it right from the beginning. But then I had to go sell it cold. And that meant researching out as many uh, publishers as I could that that would take unagented material. And it came up to be about 13 different editors that I could send to. Uh, so then I had to write query letters and write synopsis and a synopsis and also uh, include sample chapters. And of course, you have to go on their website and see do they want two sample chapters, three sample chapters? How many do they want? Do they want a synopsis? You, you just make each packet unique. And then, of course, when you send it out, it goes on what in the business they call the slush pile which means the thousands and thousands of entries that go to an editor or go to a publisher every week. Uh, they have, the big publishers will have assistants who read through the manuscripts, at least the first few pages. And if something has merit, then they put it aside and the editor will take a look at it. That's what often happens. And that's what happened to mine. Mine was bought out of the slush pile, which is like a one chance in a million. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think it's because it has such a strong voice. And the, then the, I didn't get any message from Kate at first. I got it from another assistant. And, um, she said, you know, Kate's really interested in this, but she can see some problems. So could you please address those problems and then send it back? And so I did. And we did that a couple of times. And then I got another email that says, okay, now you can talk to Kate. Wow. Ah. So they <laughs> wanted to see if you knew how to revise. That's right. Re revision was really huge. And the fact that I mean, I know a lot of authors who have great ideas and have a decent manuscript, but when they get a message back saying that they have to revise or if they have to do major revisions, they never do it. And so the editors are, are kind of gun-shy, and they want to know that you're willing to do the work and put in the, put in the time. And, um, and I was. I mean, I did my dissertation. I can do revisions on a book so that's what I did yeah. and it turned out well also oh. also what I know about you is that you like to play with the elements of narrative it's it's like a game so when the editor says I'd like you to change this you step back and you look at all of the different uh, aspects of sort of the rhetorical um, character of the story. You look at the way you've used all your tools to persuade um, the reader that such and such is true or such and such is the case. Mm -hmm. And so since you've already gone through that analysis the first time when you were writing it, then you can step back and say, okay, I used this technique. Now they want me to go and change it to this different direction. I can use these other techniques to move it that way. So you have a really analytical mind when it comes to narrative. When it comes to narrative and also when it comes to details, one of the most convincing aspects of my writing, I think, is that I include actual historical details. 
and I do a lot of historical research, and so it makes it 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 gives it that sense of verisimilitude that you need to have as a writer, so that the reader can buy into your story. Anyway. All right. Now, we talked about your editor. We've talked about how important it is to have a good relationship with your editor and, and um, to know how to revise. And um, now you have an agent. And um, can you tell about how you met your agent and developed a relationship with mm -hmm. him and, and what sort of benefits he offers to you? Okay. I tried for a, a number of years to get an agent. And I'm afraid my book is so offbeat, off the wall, that it really didn't appear appeal to most mainstream agents. They, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they didn't didn't see the value in it. Um, finally, I was at another conference and I was talking to another author who's well known and has a great agent. So these are writing and, conferences, yes? Yes, yes. I meet, I go to conferences sometimes and meet other authors and other, and editors. Um, that's a, a big part of the business. It costs money, but you know, in the long run, you're not going to have a a good career without it unless you're, you know, super author or something. But, um. Anyway, this this other author uh, was willing to read some of my stuff, and and so he did. He read part of the second book, and he just said, "Why? What does your agent say about this?" And I said, "I don't have an agent." And he said, "I can't imagine you don't have an agent." Um, I said, "Well, I've submitted several times. I mean, I've gone through Writers Market and the lists and everything, and sent off to every agent I could find." And he looked really thoughtful for a minute, and then he said, well, I'm not considered a children's author necessarily, and my agency mostly publishes adult books or uses um, adult book authors. And so he said, but I, I was talking to my agent, and he said that their agency is thinking about branching out into some YA lit uh, or middle grade literature. And so I'm going to give you their their uh, contact information. I'm going to tell them about you. And then we'll see what it, what happens from there. So they were cautiously, I did that, they were cautiously supportive. And then as I wrote, I kept sending stuff to this one agent, he's actually the second agent in that in that uh, agency, and he got excited about the second book. And when I finally finished it, and I sent the whole thing to him, um, which I thought was kind of funny because he wouldn't be my agent, but he kept giving me suggestions <laughs> for the book. And so when um, he finally read the the second manuscript. He uh, he called me up and said, "I think I think I you know I would like to be your agent." And so I said, "Yay, you know, let's go." And <laughs> and then he was very good about giving me more suggestions. He actually had me go through uh, oh four or five more revisions. Um, and 
I had my writer's group, of course, helping me too. And sometimes they'd come up with the same things he did, which only validated that that was a problem I need to work on. And finally he said, okay, let's send it off. Well, in the meantime, he also contacted Kate. He happens to know her, and he sold. He was in the process of selling her another book. And he uh, just kept telling her, Laura's almost ready with her book. She's almost ready with her book. And then and Kate got excited, and then he sent it to her. And she emailed me and said... <laughs> And said that she got it, and it'll take her a little while to read it. And that's one thing that editors are famous for, is taking a long time to read (laughs) anything. Well, it sounds like now you have um, two professional people to help you get that book to be the very best it can be in the time that is available before publication. And you also have your writer's group, which is full of people with experience and opinions. So you Mm -hmm. have a lot of different perspectives to help you out. Yeah, that is. Um, It's very helpful. And and it makes you feel connected. Uh, I also appreciate other authors here in, in Utah where I am. We have quite a few YA and middle grade authors and younger children's authors who um, have kind of banded together to do a lot of different things and it's very nice to be included in their group. Um, They do charitable things and they do, um, well, they do uh, group book signings at book uh, stores and things. So it's kind of nice. So you get to hang out with fun people. Yeah, and every once in a while one of them will get on the internet and on the email list and say, anybody in this area, let's go to lunch, you know, (laughs) or something like that. That's fun. So it's kind of fun. I remember when I was working at the Bulletin, um, there were just a lot of books that that were received by the editor, Deborah, and that she thought were good enough to go out to the table and be assigned to someone to read for a review that came out of that group of Utah writers for children and um, young adults. I should probably specify that YA means young adult um, from the age of about 12 or 13 up to, oh, sometime in college, although officially it's probably stops at 18, but people keep reading them. And then middle grade... Um, is kind of a flexible term, but it can it, it often means somewhere from like age 10 to age 12, but it can go down to like age 8 and up to age 13 or so. Um, and then mm-hmm. you've got the, the younger readers under that. Yeah, the um, my editor explained it to me that the Harry Potter books had changed the the cataloging of the books quite a bit because... Even as dark and as old as Harry Potter got, it uh, is still considered middle grade. Yeah. So um, it's moving so toward a very edgy YA now. A very what they call edgy, meaning that you can deal with the really harsh facts of life and um, have a lot of you know problems. 
mm-hmm. that deal with uh, drugs or sexuality or whatever. They're not as Whereas middle as grade were. doesn't quite do that so much. Okay. So you've got um, one book out about Petronella and Uncle Augustus, and it's the first of four that you have planned, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And can you uh, tell a little bit about each one? Well, the first one, Petronella Saves Nearly Everyone, is where, of course, she saves nearly everyone from, um, bio, well, entomological warfare. Uh, so she saves nearly everyone in London and, and around. And then the second one is set in Brighton, and it involves an assassination attempt on King Edward and the Grand Duke of Russia, one of the Grand Dukes of Russia. Um, so she saves several more. That's Petronella saves several more. And then the third one, Petronella saves at least one, is set in Scotland, and it, it involves a, a bicycle race uh, like the Tour de France, only you know, set in 1903 with their, those kinds of bicycles. Hot air balloons and uh, a hint of the Loch Ness Monster, bagpipes, kilts, ghosts, just about everything else. <laughs> but this one is where Uncle Augustus gets kidnapped. Huh. And uh, because of his superpowers now, and he becomes an object were a kind of a, a sports megal- megalomaniac <laughs> oh. who wants to find out what his secret is. And then the fourth one is called Saving Petronella. And it's actually when they set off to find the island of where um, Uncle Augustus's beetle came from. The one that changed and, him. Down in Central America. But they're also there to help the British, um, the British track down some pirates who are trying to interfere with the development of the Panama Canal. So we kind of come full circle back to the Panama Canal. And, of course, Petronella gets a little too close to finding out who's responsible for the pirates, and she gets kidnapped herself. And then um, we didn't even mention James, but James, who is the... Uh, kind of the love interest in the whole thing. He has to save Petronella. And she's been saving him the whole time also. Well, she's been saving everybody the whole time, and she's been very independent and very spunky. And he thinks that now's the time when he has to go save her. And I won't tell how that ends. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to reading them. I've read the first two, but I haven't, of course, read the others. So I'm excited. Now, you spend so much time with Petronella. What do you like best about writing that kind of heroine? Oh, she's everything you wish you could be. For one thing, she's filthy rich. For another thing, she's very she knows all the social graces and knows how to use them to her advantage. She's also quite the fashion plate. And she has good fashion sense. And but she isn't afraid to get herself dirty or or she does she doesn't just stand there and squeal when something bad is happening she will s- jump right in 
and which makes me chuckle. It makes me laugh. <laughs> so I like Petronella because she makes me laugh. She sounds like a brick. She is. She is. Oh, and she's also very loyal to her friends. She has a best friend named Jane, whom she just loves. And she also loves her Uncle Augustus. So. She sounds like a lot of fun to, to write. She certainly is fun to read. She is. I had one lady write to me and say that Petronella is everything that Emma should have been <laughs> with Jane Austen. <laughs> I have to say, I agree. Emma um, in the book is extraordinarily irritating, um, but but Petronella is awesome. <laughs> yes, she is. She's awesome. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Well, I know that you have to, to get ready to go and teach a class, um, but is there anything else that you would want to, to share about your book or the process of writing or anything at all? Oh, anything at all. Um, just that it, it is not an instant thing that happens when we produce a book, when it's finally in your hands. It, it's something that takes years. And uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the people that I met at a charity event a couple of weeks ago, um, all these aspiring writers and they had no clue really the process about the process that they needed to go through but they were writing and that was the important thing is they need to write and then they need to submit (laughs) I do have friends who have wonderful books going but never submit them (laughs) it just drives me crazy so anyway perseverance pays I remember I met the author Anne Cannon once, and she pointed out that when she was in a writing program in college, she kept submitting things. She would write things and then submit them and, of course, be rejected. But her friends always were a little surprised that she was actually submitting because the tragic thing to do, you know, the the popular thing to do was to write but not to submit. (laughs) And eventually she got published. (laughs) Oh, yes, and she's an award-winning author, and... Yes. Some of her stuff is is just amazing. It's, I really like Anne Cannon a lot. So she can't be tragic anymore. No, she she's not a tragic person. <laughs> no, she's a very fun person. Well, thank you. You're Mom. welcome. <laughs> and thank you for doing this. You're welcome. Uh, can I brag a little? Can I say can I say what I get to do when you're writing your books? Sure. Or do you want to say what I get to do? Because then it doesn't sound like I'm bragging. No, sometimes I have you read them and see. I might get a comment from someone, and I think, uh, you know, one of my writer's group or even my agent, and I think, wait a minute, I put that in there, or I didn't have it that way, or didn't you get it? And sometimes that is a legitimate concern that, that you wrote it one way, but they're taking it some other way, and they're right. They're not, I mean, you're not right as the author, because if your audience isn't getting it, then then you have to change it somehow. And so sometimes I'll have you read it, because I think, did I really write that? 
that way. I mean, I don't see it that way. And then you tell me if they're right or wrong. Also, um, you, you've been a really good critic for me and act almost as a part of my writer's group. So that's really great. Aw, thank you. <laughs> see, so you don't have to brag. <laughs> I always enjoy getting a chance to read it. It's Very good. Okay, thank you, Mom, and um, hopefully we'll get to have you on the, the show another time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and good luck with your show. Thank you. I love you. I love you, too. Bye. Bye-bye. So thank you very much to my mother, Deanie Lowe, for coming and doing this interview with me. I apologize for the up and down sound stuff. It was our first time doing an episode or doing a, an interview over Skype. So um, I'm still trying to work out how to mess with the volume controls. Anyway, if you want to follow my mother's adventures in being a published author, you can go to her webpage, which is www.deanielow.com. So um, www. Uh, D is in dog, E is in Nancy, no, D is in dog, E is in echo, N is in Nancy, E is in echo, L as in loud, um, O as in O, and W as in W dot com. So, um, dog, echo, Nancy, echo, uh, loud, O, W dot com. And the book, of course, is The Entomological Tales of Augustus T. Percival, colon, Petronella Saves Nearly Everyone. And you can get it on Amazon or at Borders or Barnes & Noble or wherever fine books are sold. So I just want to wrap up um, the episode segment about my mom's book with a review that I wrote for goodreads.com. Um, I'm Timna on there. You can go and be my friend there too if you would like. Tell me all about what you're reading. I would like that. And I just like to keep my hand in writing reviews and keeping tracks of the books that I've read. Books that I've read. So I wrote a review of my mom's book when it came out, when it was published a few months ago. And I just want to share that here with you. So here it is. The author is my mother, and I read this book pre-publication. As manuscripts go through many changes during the publication process, I have held off on reviewing it until it was published so that I could reread it and review the published text. Lest anyone think that I am biased in this review, let me include a reminiscence of my relationship with the art of writing and with my mother. I was about seven years old. I took a story I had written into the kitchen and read it aloud to my mother, who was baking cookies. When I was done, I asked her if she liked my story. She said it was fine, but the prince was rather wooden, and the talking horse was cliché. This hurt my feelings, and I said, you're supposed to like my story. You're my mother. She responded, don't you want to get to be a better writer? So you see, I have nothing to gain from posting a rhapsodical review of my mother's writing. I will also note for the interested that my mother wrote this book for fun, as a spoof of scholarly writing, during occasional breaks from writing her doctoral dissertation. Her other inspirations include the brilliant books of Georgette Hare and P.G. Wodehouse, as well as the short stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Now to the book. 
Petronella is a graceful yet intrepid heroine who sets greater store by her brains and her relationships with dependable friends and relatives than she does by her social graces. Yet she is not likely to toss those graces overboard without a reason, either. What I especially like about Petronella is that she fully understands the social mechanics of her world and the reasons for its many taboos, and that this understanding allows her to choose exactly when, how, and why she will transgress those laws in order to, quote, do the right thing, unquote. And her closest friends and relatives, including the insatiable insectivore that is her guardian, Uncle Augustus T. Percival, not only support her in this, they daringly partner with her in every dangerous enterprise she attempts. In the course of the book, Petronella really does save nearly everyone, and she gently leads the reader to believe that, truly, anyone with half a brain could and should have done so. Some readers might not appreciate the brief reflections on principles and philosophies that begin each chapter, arguing that these reflections slow the pace of the novel. I like these short interludes because they demonstrate in a concrete way Petronella's intellectual mastery of every situation, even the most surprising or bizarre. Let's talk about knitting. Yes, yes. Yeah. Let's talk about knitting and making stuff. Let's talk about knitting. Yeah. You tell yeah. it like it is, girl. We'll have some fun. I hope you're not getting tired of that intro, because I still really like it. Well, as you know, I have been working on this cardigan by Joe Sharp. It came out in the fall 2004 issue of Interweave Knits. It's called the Silk Road Cardigan. Only um, I've changed the internal uh, stitch pattern from a knit two purl one rib to a knit two purl two sort of cable pattern out of another book and it so far it's been going along pretty well I um, altered the pattern to fit my size by measuring myself and then using my limited math skills to extrapolate from my swatch um, the uh, the gauge that I would uh, be using and, and then therefore the number of stitches I would need in each row etc etc um, I was going off the amount of stretch that was suggested in the Joe Sharp cardigan, and so I thought, okay, if it stretches that much, then um, that should work out, um, because the knit two purl two rib is still very elastic. The thing is, though, as I got the back done and I hung it up, well, the back and the two sides of the front that are all one piece, I hung it over my dress form, which is not even the size that I am now, because it uh, we made a cover for it my friend and I made a cover for it last year and then I got on some new medication that made me gain a lot more weight and so I moved bigger than that and, and as I stretched the back around to fit that um, that dress form I just thought that pattern the stitch pattern did not look as pretty when it was all stretched out like that so I think I might put in a gusset under the sleeves um, not up under the underarms, but from the underarms, um, a, a point, making a point, excuse me, a triangle point up under the underarms, down to a triangle base, um, down at the at the hemline, and I might do it in something like seed stitch or moss stitch or something like that, uh, because I think it would just be too confusing to have it be in this um, in this cable pattern since it wouldn't match up with any of the other cabling on the front or on the back. 
So that's what I'm thinking. I won't know, of course, until I get all the bits done and I pin or, or baste them together and see what's going on. Um, I am most of the way done with the second sleeve. I probably have about two more days or two more nights of work on that second sleeve. And after that, then I need to change to a different yarn so that I can knit the uh, piece for the, the collar and the front ties. That's all one piece as well. And it's a slightly smaller, um, what do you call it, uh, weight yarn. Um, the one that I'm using right now is uh, for, for the body of the sweater is a worsted weight yarn, and then the other is more of a DK weight. So um, the, the other one I will also be getting from Hobby Lobby, since that's where I get my cheapo yarn from. And overall, I think I'm going to be very pleased with this sweater. One of the things that keeps coming up as I make this is that it's getting colder, slightly colder. Um, we're having a weird year here in the Chicago area, and so even though it's just early September, and usually it's still very hot and humid, we've had some cold weeks. And so I've been enjoying the cold flashes and the idea that they bring with them that I'm going to need a sweater and that I'm going to have a sweater. I'm going to have a sweater that I made. It's been a long time since I had a sweater that I made for myself. And this is a sweater that not only I made, but it's one where I took the pattern and I altered it to suit my particular needs. And it's amazing what a boost, what, what a feeling of pride and pleasure and comfort I get from that indication of my own self-sufficiency. It's really a wonderful thing knowing how to make one's own um, articles that are needed for life, make one's own clothes, make one's own food, grow one's own um, vegetables and, and fruits. I've, as you know, I, I help out over at the uh, organic farm um, with the chickens and it's a lot of work, I'm not, I'm not gonna lie, it's a lot of work. Um, I only go once a week, um, and I don't even get to take very many eggs home. It's just two of the, the outsized eggs, and that doesn't mean big eggs. Usually now that means small eggs. Um, two of them home with me every shift. Um, but knowing that I know how to do this now, that I can have chickens of my own someday when I uh, have a, a place to keep them, and that they don't scare me, that I can handle this, that's a beautiful thing, and I think that knitting this sweater is a lot like taking care of, of um, animals that can provide a food source. It's making life better um, at home with one's own two hands. One of the other things I'm going to need to make with my own two hands is uh, some baby stuff. A, friend's, a friend of mine, a former roommate, uh, is having a baby, maybe tomorrow, and I got the due date wrong. I thought it was in October and that I still had some time to prepare. And I called her to chat uh, yesterday. And she said that not only had they moved into a new house, but also she was due on, say, you know, Thursday or Friday. And that her mom was there to help her out. And I thought, holy crap, I am going to have to make something, like, right now. Um, and, uh, and so I'm... I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. I think I will make some little uh, baby stocking caps because even though the baby's going to be born here in September, it will get cold fast. They live in Minnesota, 
and um, some fun little baby caps uh, could stretch out as the baby gets older and be used for a while. So that looks like a good idea and I'll let you know how that goes as well. We have just a few minutes left and so I'm going to leave you with another song from the era from my mother's book. Um, and I probably didn't explain earlier but all the songs you've heard so far in this episode are from the era between 1900 and 1910 which is the time when her book is set and so here's one last one from the internet archive and this is I Remember You by Ada Jones. Again, thank you for finding me again and signing up for the new RSS feed or again whatever it is and if you can't find them the new show notes are at avocadonits.wordpress.com Jones from the Internet Archive.